way back in the early 90s, I was on the original uh, human genome um, uh, advisory uh, group, and then we were deciding what grants the federal government should fund to, to promote the sequencing and, and uh, mapping of the human genome. And uh, one, of one of the reasons I left that group was a little bit of frustration because I think that um, there was a lot of concern about what we might learn through genetics that we might have trouble grappling with. And at the time, one of the big concerns was, what if we learn that there are racial disparities in intelligence? Can we talk about that, right? And uh, the the LC Working Group, which was a subcommittee of that of that advisory group, was pretty much told you can't have a conference on that. Um, but it's challenge across the field of neuroscience, and I realize this is a little bit of a digression, but it's a challenge across the field of neuroscience, right? We're trying to model um, so many different brain-based conditions that have, in many ways, like the fundamental thing that we're trying to fix is the um, the sort of qualia of suffering and how do you measure that? Welcome to a special season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society, or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In this special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into an INS annual meeting. Thanks for joining today. This is Nita Farahani. I'm the immediate past president of the International Neuroethics Society and a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University. I'm delighted today to be hosting a conversation with Anita Allen and Kara Ramos, who will introduce themselves shortly on the topic of social justice and neuroethics, which was the topic of our last annual meeting at the International Neuroethics Society. I'm going to turn it over first to Anita and ask that she introduce herself and welcome. Hello, uh, Anita. I'm Anita Allen, and I'm also a professor of law and philosophy, but at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also a member of the National Academy of Medicine and was recently uh, named uh, to win the uh, Founders Award of, of the Hastings Center. I'm very proud about that achievement. We're so delighted to see that, Anita, and congratulations. Kara. Hello, I'm really excited to be joining this conversation. My name is Kara Ramos. I am Vice President um, for Neuroscience and Society at the Dana Foundation here in New York City. Well, it's a delight to have you both here since you both participated in our annual meeting last year at the International Neuroethics Society, but also bring important um, backgrounds and perspectives to bear on these issues of how we ought to be thinking about social justice and bioethics and neuroethics more generally. I thought I'd start with a little context and background because um, as the uh, past president of the International Neuroethics Society, I was able to 
um, set the agenda for what the meeting would be about and then uh, hand it over to a phenomenal programming committee who then fleshed it out to determine what it would actually be about. So I was able to simply define the topic and uh, be part of the determination of who ought to be on the committee to help us then shape and fill out what that would look like. And they did a really extraordinary job in, in defining it and, and bringing meaning to it. But the context of it was that, um, you know, it, it seemed to me that both given um, increase uh, police violence in the United States that is directed um, toward African-Americans um, and the growing awareness that that seemed to bring for a lot of people about inherent structural racism um, that is pervasive in society and affects so much of what we do from um, health to the brain to every other aspect of society, that it's a conversation that I had not heard discussed much, if at all, within the neuroscience and neuroethics community, or even the bioethics community uh, in which I'd been involved. Anita uh, and I served on the um, Obama Bioethics Commission together, and I, I don't think we ever addressed issues of structural racism or really grappled with um, the kind of profound inequalities and how it touches and really affects so much of, of what we do. And so, I hoped that we could dedicate an annual meeting that was focused on it. And at the time, there had been some really useful scholarship that had come out as well. Francis Shen had published an article that showed how little the issue was being discussed in any of the neuroethics journals or articles or scholarship that had been done to date. Um, and I am not a scholar nor an expert in these issues. Um, and so I hoped personally to really be able to learn from um, a phenomenal program committee who could put together an agenda to help us explore these issues and to define and put flesh around what it means, um, but also to really focus the attention of our scholarly organization on the issue so that hopefully we could expand the amount of scholarship and attention and engagement to the issue um, with this kind of conversation starter, as I saw it. Um, Anita was our keynote speaker, which we were so delighted to um, have her uh, join and, and provide. And um, Kara, who played both a really important role in shaping the neuroethics field um, and having defined the neuroethics program at uh, NIH and, and really launched it and giving it so much additional flesh, um, but also in her current role as a funder has really had to think carefully about how do you use funding as a mechanism to shift priorities and to encourage engagement in these issues as well. So I thought we would start um, with maybe, you know, kind of the broadest reflections um, given each of your work in this area, your advocacy, your scholarship in this space, to think about what, what does this even mean? What is this concept of social justice and neuroethics and bioethics? What does it mean to you for the purposes of this conversation? And why don't we start with Anita? Thank you. Well, um... When I think about um, social justice, which as you suggest, uh, has a, a new life in America, it, 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 it stems from the, the big concern that we all uh, as a society began to face after the terrible uh, acts of police violence uh, in the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor cases in the, uh, in the summer and spring of 2020. Uh, and, and, and now we're all focused on, you know, on, on more fairness and more equity in the way we uh, divide uh, resources and opportunities and privileges. Uh, and of course, among the most important types of resources are medical and health uh, care resources. And so uh, it's very natural for us to be thinking about how uh, neuroscientific uh, uh, advances as they relate to medicine and healthcare how they uh, uh, may or may not result in uh, equitable and fair um, uh, distributions of the things that we value. 
So, so that, that's how I think about it. And I, you know, I'm struck by how for so many years in bioethics, uh, we would turn to the, the uh, old philosophies of justice and, be, and make, make distinctions between distributive justice and retributive justice and corrective justice and kind of stop there and not really drill down into uh, the more um, uh, urgent issues around actual um, um, uh, allocations of, of goods in, in our society. And also that we would often neglect the subject matter of race as one of the, I think, most important um, barriers to social justice uh, because of the prejudice and bias and discrimination in our society. Uh, you, know, you may be aware that when the famous uh, Harvard philosopher John Rawls uh, published his magnificent tome, Theory of Justice, this vast book that grabbed the attention of English-speaking audiences all over the world, uh, if you look through that book, there was no discussion of race. Uh, it was as if even in the American context, we wouldn't be focusing at all on race as an essential um, a component of, of the things which make it difficult to achieve the ends of uh, justice. So it's a new thing to be focusing on social justice. It's a new thing to be focusing on race and social justice. Thanks, Anita. I'm gonna come back and drill down on that in just a moment because it it's really, it still blows my mind as I go back and think about not even just, you know, roles, but even more recently, right? Like our bioethics commission, I, I, we just didn't have these conversations. So why not? Right. I, and I want to come back to that, which is what, what is, you know, is it really, does it require that kind of police violence to, to lead to this reawakening or why did we have this blind spot over time? Um, Carol, what does it mean to you? What is this terminology that we're talking about today? This concept of social justice as Anita has defined it, it is obviously broader than race, but one major aspect of it that has been long overlooked is race. And so fairness, equity, race, um, what does it mean to you? Yeah, thanks, Anita. Um, when I think about social justice, in my mind, there's maybe three pieces equal rights, equal opportunity, and maybe equitable treatment. Um, and I'm just reflecting on your point about the lack of, the historical lack of conversation about social justice within the context of neuroscience. And, you know, it just feels so overdue to me. And like you were saying, like, it's kind of amazing in retrospect, right, that the Bioethics Commission didn't talk about this, you know, in the field of neuroscience, uh, you know, the instances where race has come up historically have been, I would say, pretty shameful, you know, where it's really science kind of reifying existing prejudices. Um, and so I, I want to be optimistic that these conversations that we're having now are going to lead the field of neuroscience to a better place where you know, we are, um, and, and this very much aligns with the vision of the Dana Foundation, supporting progress in the field of neuroscience in a way that reflects the aspirations of all people, not just the people who have historically been invited to sit at these tables of privilege. Yeah, so let's let's dive in. Let's go into this sort of why why the blind eye? Why why in a field that is dominated by experts who really think of themselves as trying to do the ethical thing of trying to help society find the ethical pathway forward and so much you know if we just take health and medicine where a lot of traditional bioethics really started and was founded um, issues of informed consent have long been pervaded by inequities um, have long been pervaded by racism if we look at distribution of goods and services distribution of healthcare access to healthcare law i mean it's 
it's, it's like the glaringly obvious, right? And so why the historical absence of these conversations, Anita, or, or the marginalization of these conversations? Yeah, and it may be a more a matter of marginalization than absence. Uh, I think on our own uh, bioethics commission, which I greatly respect and love, we were the most uh, racially, religiously, uh, professionally diverse bioethics commission of any of the presidential bioethics commission. But I think we, we tread lightly when it came to race. Uh, I think the closest we came to a direct confrontation with, with race was in our report, ethically impossible about the Guatemalan um, uh, STD experiments, which took place before the Tuskegee experiments uh, uh, back in the 20th century. Um, but, but, we, but I think that, that for political reasons, often um, uh, groups and organizations don't focus on race. Uh, I think sometimes the lack of, of people at the top of organizations and at the top of the research chain, as it were, uh, uh, who are of color and who have a vested interest in these issues might be a reason why the issues get neglected or marginalized. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that maybe until recently funding priorities Right, we're not there, and so much of our of our scientific research depends upon government and private sector funding. That I think uh, for many many decades, uh, focus was on what projects do I think can can more easily get focus, get funded, won't raise uh, hackles, won't offend anybody, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think again, finally, I think we are moving into an era when uh, the need to directly address. Um, uh, uh, racial and other disparities in healthcare has become uh, more urgent. I just mentioned that our, um, I was um, uh, uh, way back in the early 90s, I was on the original uh, human genome um, uh, advisory uh, group, and uh, we were deciding what grants the federal government should fund to, to promote the sequencing and, and uh, mapping of the human genome. And uh, one, of the one of the reasons I left that group was a little bit of frustration because I think that um, there was a lot of concern about what we might learn through genetics that we might have trouble grappling with. And at the time, one of the big concerns was, what if we learn that there are racial disparities in intelligence? Can we talk about that, right? And uh, the the LC Working Group, which was a subcommittee of that of that advisory group, was pretty much told you can't have a conference on that. You can have a conference on BRs, you know, uh, on 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 the, on the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2, and on insurance implications of that. But you can't talk about, about race directly uh, and, and about racial differences and about how genetics and racial differences relate to one another. Um, so that was a little bit of a, frust a frustrating thing. And then of course, now I think we're seeing some of the, um, the, the, the negative fallout of our unwillingness to address you know, head on right away uh, what genetics do and don't tell us about, about, about our the racialization of our population groups. Yeah, those are helpful examples. And I agree with you. I think marginalization is the right word rather than, you know, kind of complete lack of it. Um, it's really a shift in priorities too, I, I think, which is to the extent that it was part of the conversation, either the people who were raising it were oftentimes marginalized or the issues themselves were marginalized rather than recognizing, much like we talk about for example, a technology being a platform technology and it cuts across all of society. I think these issues um, of, of social equity cut across not just neuroethics, bioethics, every field in society. And I think that that recognition, that consciousness, I, I hope is both starting to change, but also is much more pervasive. Kara, um, Anita mentions funding priorities have shifted over time as well. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that 
given your own long history and in, in helping to both identify, you know, the calls for proposals and um, funding priorities and to define what those funding priorities are, if you're seeing that shift and if, if so, sort of what motivated the shift and, and where was it previously? Yeah, I, I really wanted to pick up a thread um, that I was hearing that that Anita was discussing that in my mind relates to sort of the division between um, we could say the life sciences and other areas of scholarship that scientists are much less comfortable with. So, you know, I'm a neuroscientist by training. I guess I'm the only one in this group of three. And I think for a lot of scientists, you know, we go into science because we want to better understand and explain natural phenomena. And we like the idea that science is objective, that we're looking at things that are measurable and quantifiable, and we can sort of decomplexify the world through our experiments, right? And I think that the that's a very noble aspiration, but I think that often what I have observed is that that leads to this real discomfort with the idea that there may be elements that come to bear on health outcomes, for instance, that are outside that realm of what's quantifiable and objective and measurable. And so that's really problematic, right? Because we all know that health outcomes are not just dictated by, you know, the particular set of genes you were born with, the particular, you know, exposome that you grew up with. There are these societal factors that influence health. And I, I think that that there is going to be over time, hopefully more integration between these very sort of objective and quantifiable like life sciences approaches with these broader and just different methodological ways of understanding human health and um, and well-being. So that's one thing that I really feel that I came away from my time at NIH with an understanding of. And I think COVID and the development of the vaccines is a really good example of that. I think I mean, I, I, my my read on sort of Francis Collins's reaction to the fact that so many people, um, even NIH staff, didn't want to take the COVID vaccine was really just one of shock that 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 was like that could not have been foreseen in his mind. Right. And I think that I think that there was just this assumption going in that, you know, we're going to have this amazing technology of vaccine that's targeted against the SARS-CoV-2 virus and who wouldn't want it. Right. But now we see that 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 was. Um, an incomplete understanding, right, of what motivates um, and affects human health and well-being. And, and that's why I'm saying, you know, I just, I hope that over time there will be more integration of things like behavioral and social sciences to paint this much broader picture, you know, of how science and technology can produce better outcomes for human health. Um, and so I think that you know, thinking about social justice, in my mind, in a way, falls in that frame, right? Because social justice, these concepts of equity and um, opportunity just just seem very much outside the lane of science from a very narrow perspective that science is all about being able to do experiments and measure and quantify. Um, but But I think what we're seeing is the reality is you can't just do these very narrowly scoped, you know, scientific approaches and think that that's going to solve our health challenges. Yeah. Although, you know, increasingly, I think we may be able to quantify some of it and people are attempting to do so, but, but it, but your, your points raised for me an interesting um, kind of thought about and reflection on Anita's keynote at uh, the INS annual meeting, um, which is the power of narrative 
in helping people to understand the effect um, and, and the subtle effects that may, may sometimes not be easily quantifiable of, of race on health. And so Anita, I was, I was hoping you could just share with the listeners today a little bit about both um, the topic of, of your um, keynote, but also the choice to do it in, in narrative um, and to tell it through your personal narrative, because I thought that was a very powerful uh, technique, a very powerful way of being able to share the message that you were sharing. Thank you. Um, well, the title of my, of my uh, lecture was My Harvard Headache, Brain Pain and Black People. And the, the, the talk was an opportunity for me to share uh, an experience that I'd never shared before with any public audience. Um, and I was reluctant to do so at first because I thought, well, does it really fit into the whole neuroethics, um, neuroscience framework? But then I found this interesting um, book uh, from 2018, edited by Karen Davis and Daniel uh, Buckman, in which there was a, um, a chapter uh, by sociologist Johanna Kemper, who argued that uh, neuroethics should demonstrate how inequalities in the treatment of pain uh, are the result of deeply historical processes that have created racialized and gendered institutions, state policies, myths, and attitudes. I thought, aha, I have permission. <laughs> I have permission because uh, the Davis and Buckman book, Pain, Neuroethics, and Bioethics, and the paper in there by Joanna Kemper seemed to open the door to having a conversation about the neuroethics of pain and about its connection to racialized and gendered institutions. And I think that, that my topic of migraine headache, which was the focus of the pain, in my, in my talk is a very gendered and very racialized um, um, area. And just if I could just you know, hit on some of the, the highlights of my talk, one of the things that I focused on was the, um, was the uh, stereotypes that surround migraine headaches. Uh, the migraine sufferer is often stereotyped as a, as a young, slim, white woman uh, who uh, holds her forehead in her hands and exhibits a stereotypical kind of pain behavior when she's suffering the headache. Uh, that's one stereotype. Another stereotype is that migraine sufferers are geniuses, artists, visionaries, extraordinary people who are uh, perfectionist and uh, meticulous, et cetera. And that stereotype does not match the stereotypes of African-Americans at, at all. Um, so the stereotypes of, of of, of migraine and of, of migraine suffering, I think, that were perpetrated by many well-meaning people, including our the great neurologist Oliver Sacks, that those stereotypes don't help clinically when a black person goes to the hospital and says, uh, I have a headache, right? They're not, it's not understood as being connected to possibly the migraine uh, syndrome. Uh, so that was kind of a starting point. And what I tell in the in the narrative portion of my of my talk is that when I was a law student at Harvard Law School, uh, I arrived there, I already had my PhD, I was feeling very confident when I walked in the door, but the stresses and strains of being in a big, um, a high prestige law school where people are competitive, uh, where people are not necessarily liberals, <laughs> um, uh, at a time when I was also in a very complicated personal relationship with uh, someone whom I married and divorced while I was in law school. Uh, I lost my, several of my grandparents when I was a law student. It was just a very stressful time. And, and sometime around the beginning of the second semester, 
as I was sitting in a funeral for one of my friend's mothers who passed away, uh, I got a headache and that headache did not go away for two and a half to three years. Uh, that was my Harvard headache. And I found it very difficult to get diagnosed, uh, very difficult to get effective treatments. And I also found that, um, that misdiagnosis and mistreatment were, were, were problems. Um, so I, 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 I believe that that experience, I mean, I almost, I almost had to drop out of law school because of that experience. I certainly didn't perform as well in law school as I would have liked because of, the, of, of being in constant pain. But imagine being, you know, being in constant pain while you're trying to get a, a law degree from Harvard and then going to Wall Street to work for this one of the big, biggest, fanciest law firms on Wall Street at the time, Cravath, Swain and Moore, while you have a headache constantly. <laughs> um, and, and the way you try to conceal the headache, but sort of can't, and sometimes it shows on your face and your eyes may be slightly droopy and you're, you may have seizure-like symptoms. And my migraines were associated with very complicated um, migraine aura. I was constantly seeing snow in my visual field, uh, uh, geometrical patterns, uh, expanding uh, circles of light. And this was just my everyday reality, again, for, for nearly three years. So um, looking at the literature on migraine pain, uh, there isn't a lot written about African-Americans migraine pain, but, but there was a very interesting article that I talked about uh, in, my, in my lecture, uh, uh, an article written by um, uh, uh, a, an African-American uh, researcher. And he, um, this is an article by uh, Larry Charleston, by the way, Larry Charleston, a, a medical doctor, um, published an article in the National um, Medical Association Journal. But in his article from, um, from 2021, quite recent, he, um, he suggests some of the findings that one does see in the small literature about migraine headaches and African-Americans. Uh, he points out that one, there are, race, there are definitely race-based dis disparities in headache and migraine in the United States. African-Americans migraines tend to be more frequent and more severe and more likely to become chronic and associated uh, with more depression and lower quality of life compared to non-Hispanic whites. And that was certainly uh, my experience. They were frequent, they were severe, and they were chronic. Um, uh, as education and income decrease, go down, all headache diagnoses, including migraines, increase. And so if you have a population of people who are low, lower income, you might, you, you know, you're bound to find, according to this data, sort of more headache uh, in that community. Um, it's also reported, unfortunately, that African-Americans um, uh, find that, that health services for, for migraine treatment are um, less available, less utilized. Um, Follow-up appointments may not be uh, as uh, available and, or may be terminated. Inaccurate diagnoses are common. Acute migraine attacks uh, may be under-medicated. Uh, mistrust and in, in, in poor communication between providers and patients may result in, um, in greater problems with getting the right um, uh, um, uh, address. A couple more key points from the research uh, that comorbidities that um, like sleep disorders and, and depression may and stress may, uh, high blood pressure may make migraines a bit more hard to treat. Um, and, and finally, um, one particular type of symptom that I had with migraines, my migraines is where your scalp becomes extremely sensitive. So I'd have a very sensitive scalp and sometimes a big bulging 
um, um, blood vessel swelling in the back of my head. That, that apparently is more, uh, more commonly associated with acute migraines and African-Americans are more likely to, re to, to report that particular symptom than, than other people. So, so that was the, what I was, I was trying to address. Like, so, and so what can we do about this? And one final point, so there's, there are new generations of migraine treatments, thank goodness. Um, uh, we're not relying upon the old ones from the 1970s and 80s when I had my first migraine, um, chronic migraine problem. I've had migraines all my life, but only chronically in law school. Um, and then, and then um, uh, the, the, but some of the newer treatments um, are extremely expensive. And if the treatments are going to be are predicted to cost between you know seven thousand and twenty thousand dollars a year, how who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that level of treatment? So uh, we have a real issue here, and I think that the the talk gave me a great opportunity to use my personal story to illuminate and to emphasize some of the racial disparities and um, and uh, in in both the the uh, the, the, the uh, phenotype of migraines and also in their their treatment and cure. Thanks, Anita. I mean, there's so many interesting points that were raised by your talk, um, and you know, you you highlight some of them. You know, it, it seems like we could generalize it across a few different categories, right? Which is differences in healthcare and healthcare outcomes. Um, you know, the fact that you're able to cite some statistics and some data about how it affects African Americans versus um, non-African Americans in in migraine is somewhat unique as well, because it hasn't necessarily always been that well studied to understand how um, there may be differences in health or manifestations. And I think one of the things that made it so interesting for me, aside from being a migrainer myself, and so it really resonating with me was um, the fact that migraine is such an interesting uh, and good proxy for so many issues in, in neuroscience and neuroethics, which is it's an invisible pain for many people, right? You have to trust a person when they tell you that they are experiencing pain. And while we've gotten better at some neuroimaging for it, that isn't classically how it is diagnosed. It's diagnosed from, you know, trust of what the person is saying. And, and you can easily start to see how there would be significant racial differences in how um, people would be treated and, and would be um, regarded with respect to coming in of, of complaints of what we might call invisible pain. And, and I wonder, Kara, with your both background in neuroscience, but also background in in, in funding and in priorities in this area, that to me seems like a pervasive issue across neuroscience, that so much of what's happening in our brain isn't something that we are able to visually see. Um, and so many, you know, both mental illnesses, but also, um, you know, any kind of mental health condition. Um, up until now, we haven't had very good imaging or other correlates, it's been symptomatically diagnosed, it's been symptomatically treated, and, and that that can have profound implications as we think about layering social justice and structural racism across about, about how it's regarded. And so I wonder if, you know, if that kind of strikes a chord with you of thinking about, as we tried to focus neuroethics on the issue, if there's something special or unique about the fact that we're talking about brain and that so much of what's in brain is you know, not visible to the naked eye. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely Nita. I mean, I think about, I, you've probably heard me say this before, you know, well, there's a debate, right, about whether neuroethics should be its own field separate from bioethics. And um, you've probably heard me say before that I think, you know, there's a reason why we talk about neuroethics, but not hepatoethics or pulmonary ethics, like going, <laughs> right. I mean, going back to my comments earlier about looking for things that are objective and quantifiable, like it's much easier to measure. I mean, I'm not a pulmonologist, but lung function versus like you said, Nita, what's going on in your brain. And also 
um, it's, it's complicated when you're trying to diagnose or work with conditions that affect the very organ that produces our experiences as human beings, right? So that's just another level of complexity, whether we're talking about informed consent, which of course, again, derives from brain function or, you know, sort of the lived experience that we all have. Um, so yeah, I think there is absolutely um, this additional element when we think about layering social justice on top of neuroscience. Uh, one thing that I was thinking about actually when you were talking, Nita, because my background is in pain research is not only do we have the issue that, um, you know, pain conditions, including migraine, um, are not, not things that we can necessarily see on like a brain scan. They're also things that are really difficult to model in animals. And that's one of the reasons why I left the field of pain research, because I just felt like wow, there's such a disconnect between the animal models that we're using and the actual outcome of improved treatments for people who are suffering from pain-based conditions. I mean, that's why I went into pain research in the first place, because it's just so pervasive and it's such a quality of life issue. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the field of pain research has made a lot of progress since the time that I was working with those animal models. Um, but it's challenge across the field of neuroscience. And I realize this is a little bit of a digression, but it's a challenge across the field of neuroscience, right? We're trying to model um, so many different brain-based conditions that have in many ways, like the fundamental thing that we're trying to fix is the, um, the sort of qualia of suffering and how do you measure that in an animal, right? So, um, and maybe on that point as well, when we think about if we wanna take that idea of the qualia of suffering, that has, you know, gendered and racial dimensions too, of course, right? Whether it's like the um, the importance of one's suffering that society thinks like we need to fix that or we need to pay attention to that. Um, so yeah, lots of really interesting intersecting can threads I, there. Yeah, That's such an interesting point. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why the stereotype of the migraine sufferer so often focuses on the geniuses, the artists, the extraordinary, exceptional people is because frankly, those folks have the ability to articulate uh, what they're experiencing in really interesting ways. They can paint it, they can poet it, they can narrate it. And so, so oh, it must be that those kinds of people are the ones who have this condition. Of course, that's a fallacy, but I think that it's not an accident that this, this invisible disorders, you know, are so easily thought of to be, um, to be, uh, diseases or conditions of the people who are the best articulators of them when we don't have, you know, good animal models and don't have a way to see through a scan or an x-ray, you know, right, of what's going on. And then in addition to that, I was thinking about a parallel to psychiatry in general, because uh, I used to be um, um, very interested, I guess I still am, in the ethics of psychiatry. And in particular, in the ways in which we, we um, uh, construct people experiencing uh, mental um, conditions like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, uh, uh, as, um, as, uh, as, as, as not moral agents, not responsible for their conduct. And I, I try to argue that, that there are ways to understand people who are affected by these conditions as part of the moral universe and moral agents, not simply moral patients. But there's a whole literature of, of memoirs uh, by people with, 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 uh, with mental condition. And I'm gonna say like, none of them are written by black people. It's like, you know, putting aside for, you know, going back, going back to Franz Fanon, but, but there's almost no uh, con contemporary literature 
of, uh, of, uh, of memoirs or narratives about mental health, mental illness uh, by African-Americans. I was just thinking, you know, Anita, I'm really grateful to you for bringing this up because one of the things that we're trying to do at the Dana Foundation is develop new models for public audiences to engage with neuroscience and the ethical and legal and societal implications of neuroscience. neuroscience. And um, when I think about public engagement with neuroscience, I think that that has to happen through channels that are accessible to people. You know, like I was having a conversation about this last night with some colleagues that academic papers are the currency of scientists. And if we want to connect with non-scientific audiences, we need modes of engagement that fall outside of that space of academic papers. So it's just making me think, Anita, that we need to, or it might be beneficial to figure out ways to equip people, especially from marginalized communities, with the tools to communicate about, you know, to express themselves, like you're saying, um, because you know, whether it's through the arts or, you know, like other other ways of understanding and expressing our experiences as people. Um, you're just sort of setting off a light bulb in my mind that, you know, maybe that's something to think about in the space of like public engagement with neuroscience and new ways to approach that uh, that are maybe less um, less traditional. Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, I wasn't, I didn't mean to suggest that, um, that uh, marginalized or racialized groups are less articulate. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what, I, what I meant to say, uh, and, I, and I, I think you heard what I was trying to say, but for the purposes of those who are listening uh, uh, to the podcast, just to be clear, uh, what I mean is that um, there are ways that different communities um, cope with, deal with, uh, and express their, exactly. um, their, their, their illnesses, their conditions, and their, and their desire to be, to be helped. And they, and if we don't understand that great diversity, exactly. right, then then folks are going to get get missed, and problems are going to get go unsolved. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, what I would love to do is to have um, to, for there to be more acceptive acceptance acceptance culturally in the African American community of um, mental uh, conditions as such. I think that you know a lot of cultures um, tend to hide and suppress uh, family members who have conditions. Uh, out of out of embarrassment or shame or exhaustion, you know. Um, I I think I told the story in my in my uh, lecture uh, for the uh, the New York Ethics Group last year that uh, when I would tell my mother I had a headache, she had six children. She didn't really have time to um, focus on my invisible uh, whiny little condition. In the meantime, I'm seeing stars and you know planets and having pain, but. But I, and I don't blame her because I know that given her um, uh, cultural background, educational level, uh, uh, life circumstances, et cetera, that uh, even though we had you know, decent health insurance as part of a, the military community, uh, she just didn't have the ability to, um, to, to focus on, on me and my pain the way I could focus today on my children's pain uh, because of my different circumstances in life. So I think that, that that's the, what I'm trying to say is, is that we just need as a community to um, to open up the world to, to, to hearing and sharing these narratives within communities and also between communities. So these are some really great suggestions of how we keep this conversation going. And I think that's where I want to focus the remaining time we have together. So, you know, we <clears throat> had a, a lot of uh, conversations that I thought were rich and, and, and valuable conversations at the annual meeting last year. I'm starting to see 
um, a kind of surge of scholarship and people really pivoting a lot of their scholarship and neuroethics and in other fields toward starting to more um, deeply grapple with social justice and issues of structural racism and how it impacts different fields. Um, this is one example of you know, narratives and, and destigmatization of particular uh, issues with respect to neuroscience and, and brain health that is an important way to advance the conversation and continue it. But what do you see, both of you, um, and I'll go to Anita first, about how we make sure this isn't just a blip, right? That it isn't you know, that there was raised social consciousness when we saw you know, particularly profound um, examples of police brutality and violence, how do we make sure that this is a lasting change and not, you know, performative, uh, you know, in, engagements with the issue, um, but a real depth of engagement that is sustained and becomes a pervasive part of what it is we do in neuroethics and bioethics and across society. So Anita, what are some suggestions you have for us to ensure that this is not, this is not a blip on the radar, this is a real change over time? I'm really afraid that it's going to be a blip. I really, you know, that's one of my, my biggest concerns. And the, one of the things that, which I'm personally doing to try to make sure it's not just a blip is that, is that I'm pivoting. So I think that if, if people who are senior scholars, uh, senior uh, administrators in the funding world, um, uh, senior um, folks in politics and government, if they pivot their careers, invest themselves and their energies into these issues, then there will be a sustained uh, uh, um, opportunity for this country to really focus in on and maybe do something about these uh, persistent disparities uh, and, and lack of and lack of social justice. So I'm hoping that um, it's by um, our just digging in at the highest levels, right? Because I could easily um, stay do what I always do, uh, which is to say, not focus on race nearly enough. Uh, in fact, I'll just give you an example, Nita. But in my in my primary area of scholarship, which is privacy and data protection law, you know, I I've written a little bit here and there about African Americans and privacy uh, rights, but I'd never focused on it. And I have just decided, post George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, to pivot all of my teaching in privacy is now about privacy and race and social justice, literally. Uh, I have a new textbook I'm writing in that area. I have a new uh, sole authored book that I hope to write in that area uh, if the funding comes through. <laughs> Funders, are you listening? <laughs> but I mean, I think, I think that we, we have to invest in it in a big time, put our, put our careers on the line for these issues. And I think some, some progress might happen. It might not be just a blip. I think that's great advice, Anita, and it really, um, you know, aligns well with a lot of what people are saying in this moment too, which is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem and recognizing that each of us has a part to play in that solution and, and um, senior leaders in the field can help shape the direction of the field. I can't wait to read the scholarship that you're producing in this area. Um, the new case book will be uh, incredibly important just as all of the rest of your privacy scholarship has been so deeply influential to my work. So Kara, what do you think? How, how do we sustain this? How do we make sure this is not a blip, um, mm -hmm. but this is a sustained change in neuroethics and um, you know across society? Right, yeah, I think that everybody has a part to play um, and it really needs to be a priority for everyone, which, you know, that's one thing that I really came to appreciate in thinking about neuroethics at NIH, even though I was, you know, as you know, Nita, um, really carrying that flag and banging that drum, but it was very clear that 
it had to become everyone's responsibility. And I think similarly thinking about social justice, it doesn't work if you have one person who's the DEI person in your organization, it has to be everybody's responsibility. And I can give you two examples of things that I have done or am doing. So at a, at a personal level, when I was at NIH, I was at the Neurology Institute, NINDS, and I started with a few other folks, a uh, an employee resource group for Hispanic and Latin employees at NINDS. There are not there, oh, there there are not very many. There were not very many when I was there, and I found that by um, sort of nucleating in that way, it really actually had a huge effect on our um, our sense of inclusion in in that environment just by having that camaraderie and ability to talk with each other about the experiences that we were having as Hispanic and Latin employees. So that's an example of something that I you know did at an individual level. And then at uh, from the perspective of a funder, to give you an example of um, something we're doing at the Dana Foundation. So, we are developing, actually they're now finalized, a set of values for the foundation. And one of them is around diversity. And so our goal with these values is that they will be our North Star, that they will guide all of our actions internally and externally. And we also really hope to help um, our grantees um, embrace these values. And so, you know, I think putting diversity on that short list and, and having it be front and center in guiding what we do is another example of how, you know, as a funder, we can put our money where our mouth is and, and to avoid it being performative, um, you know, we're, we're, we're working through how to hold ourselves accountable to our values. So, you know, I think everybody has to be in involved in this and really think about how they can, um, like you said, need to be part of the solution. I was delighted to have the opportunity to serve as INS president and to be able to bring this conversation, um, at least the topic. I can't claim credit for bringing the conversation. That is entirely the society and the program committee who did the work to make that happen. But I was, I was delighted to be able to use my role to at least influence the direction of the topic we were talking about. So to Anita's point, my hope uh, in, in my role was to be able to use that to influence the direction of the conversation. And I think this advice, which is we each have to be part of the solution going forward and have to demand it be a continuing part of the conversations is the only way to make sure this time is really different. And I think that's the thing that we all hope to see is that this time is different, that this kind of consciousness is different, that it becomes part of the field, part of the fabric of what we do um, and something that each of us truly explores in our work. Anita, Kara, thank you so much for joining today with this conversation. There's obviously so much more that could be said, um, but I hope it gives some food for thought for the listeners, uh, both to contextualize and understand uh, why we pivoted our annual meeting to really focus on the issue last year, but some of the topics people can take up and explore and uh, go into further depth in, in their own scholarship, research, advocacy, and engagement with society. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks Anita. So
If these themes and conversations have piqued your interest, check out the International Neuroethics Society website, where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions. A talk from Anita Allen of today's episode can be found in the Fred Cavley Distinguished Neuroethics Lecture. Did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic? We want to hear from you. We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening.